If you have your copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn to our uh, preaching text this morning. It's Matthew chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find a pew Bible on the rack in front of you. You can find our text uh, at the bottom of page 808. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Uh, Our topic this morning is the baptism uh, of Jesus. We're in the opening section of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Really, the first four chapters are sort of an introduction or a summary to who Jesus is, uh, to what will mark his ministry and his work. Uh, He will sort of get into it in earnest in chapter 5 with his first of actually five uh, big sort of speaking uh, sections in the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we have these series of scenes, and not many of them, but enough to give us a sense of who this man is, who this king is, who this savior is, and what he has come to do. Amazingly, this is the fifth sermon in the, the book of Matthew, and it's the first time we will have words of Jesus. So far we've had lots of words about him, uh, but now we will hear his words uh, for the first time. That's just a couple verses, but it is a powerful scene. And it's important for us to understand who he is and what he plans to do. Would you follow along with me then uh, in your copy of God's word, Matthew, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you go with me again in prayer? Uh, Lord, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. When I was a kid growing up, and anybody asked me the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I never said a pastor. (laughs) I always said a policeman. I always wanted to be a cop. Uh, I loved uh, finding policemen on the streets and wanting to be like them. I think part of it was my favorite color was blue, and they all wore blue. So it'd be cool. I could wear blue all day. Uh, I loved when I got to stay home from school when I was sick, and I could watch police shows all day on daytime TV, right? Uh, I loved watching uh, Chips and Ren 1010, Canine Cops, sort of dating myself, right? But uh, I love these shows because the good guys always caught the bad guys at the end, right? They're always the heroes making the arrest at the end. And you know what happens on TV when a policeman arrests somebody, they have this phrase that they say, right? I learned much later in life, these are called the Miranda rights. And they say you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say or do can and will be used against you in the court of law. And in this final phrase, you have a right to an attorney. But if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. 
And even as a child, every time I heard that line, I, I, I thought, man, that does not sound good, <laughs> right? I mean, if you're guilty and you're caught, and then the lawyer, they, you don't even have your own lawyer. They, the court actually gives you a lawyer. Now, no offense to anyone in the, the judicial system in this room. I'm not against lawyers. It just sounds like a precarious place to be. You're guilty, and somebody gives you a lawyer or a representative to go before the judge. God's word tells us that we will all go before a judge. And God's word tells us that because we are sinners, we are all guilty. That every one of us will stand before the creator of the universe and the judge of the nations to give a defense for what we have done. The Bible also tells us that if you cannot represent yourself, a representative will be appointed for you. The Bible tells us who this representative is. His name is Jesus. The biblical language for a representative is a priest, one who stands before us on our behalf. But if we take God's word serious that we really are guilty and we really do have to stand before a judge, we may wonder, well, who in the world is this representative? Who is this guy who's going who's gonna to stand before us on our behalf before the judge of the world? The baptism of Jesus tells us who he is. The baptism of Jesus tells us the representative that every one of us needs. Now, you might not think you need him this morning. You might prefer to represent yourself this morning. I hope you will see by the time that we are done that every one of us needs him. But what I want you to see in this text is simple today. And that is this. The baptism of Jesus reveals the representative that we all need. I want to shorten it. Reveals the representative. That's a long word. It's the one who represents us. And there are two aspects of Jesus in this text that stand out, that tell us all about who he is. We're going to see in ver- two simple truths, beginning in verses 13 to 15, that he is truly man. And then we're going to see in verses 16 and 17, that he is truly God. Those are old terms, those are classic terms, those are biblical terms, but they are terms that tell us All about this representative, the one who we hope represents us. I want you to see first in this text that Jesus is revealed as a representative who is truly man. Verses 13 to 15. He is truly man. Now remember the scene where we left off last week. John is baptizing in the wilderness. People are coming to John to be baptized. They're confessing their sins. And the baptism is one of repentance. It is one that symbolizes cleansing. A bunch of religious leaders come out. They pretend they want to be baptized. He calls them brood of vipers and rebukes them. So they aren't baptized. So there's sort of these two groups. There's the repentant, knowing their sin, coming to Jesus. Then there's the prideful, not knowing their sin. I'm coming to John. They don't know their sin, but they're out there sort of watching. And then a third category appears. And that's the category of Jesus. He comes out to the wilderness. 
He comes out to John, who was there at the, the Jordan River, to be baptized. Now, John's reaction, I love this, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. <laughs> Jesus, what are you doing coming to me? You need to baptize me. There's no way I'm baptizing you. That makes no sense, right? I remember the first uh, sermon I ever preached, the first real sermon as a, as a pastor, not a, as a student or as an intern. And right as I began that service, into the back of the church came my preaching professor. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. And he sat down in the back. And I thought, there's no way I'm preaching to you. <laughs> you need to preach to me. This is what John is thinking. He is unworthy of baptizing Jesus. But there's something else going on than just John's unworthiness. What does John, at this point, know about Jesus? Well, if you've done your sort of Advent devotions in December, you will know the first time they met. When John is in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, and Jesus is in his mother's womb, the womb of Mary. And Luke tells us that when they met, when they greeted each other, you remember what happens with John. He jumps for joy. He leaps for joy in the womb, recognizing that here has arrived someone pretty special. They're born, you know, around the same time. They grew up together. This is probably about 30 years later. They're probably both about 30 years old. Doesn't seem like they grew up in the same town, maybe, but they certainly knew of each other, right? They're cousins. And one of these cousins has never, ever sinned. <laughs> Imagine being the other cousin, right? <laughs> Can't blame Jesus when you get in trouble, right? Everybody knows it's your fault. John knows Jesus' character. And I love this. He sees the character of the Pharisees last week, and he wants nothing to do with them. He sees right through it. He knows the difference between internal righteousness that only Jesus has, and the external righteousness of the Pharisees, maybe because he's known Jesus. John's baptism symbolizes repentance. There is one person in the history of the world that doesn't need that baptism, and that's Jesus. And John knows it. He knows his cousin does not need a baptism of repentance. Now, I don't think John knows yet the full picture of who Jesus is. If you want to go uh, read this afternoon in the Gospel of John, a different John, but in John chapter 1, John the Baptist sort of tells the story of what's going on in his mind as he's baptizing Jesus. And he concludes that it wasn't until the Spirit descends that he recognized he was the Messiah and he was the Son of God. But he knows enough at this point to know it's not his job to be giving a baptism of repentance to the only righteous man who ever lived. But Jesus tells him to press on, to continue. Look how Jesus answers John's objection. Now, he doesn't correct John. He doesn't say, cousin, your theology is wrong. I am a sinner just like you. I do need a baptism of repentance. You notice he doesn't say that. He says what? He says, let it be so now. That's significant. Now here at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Now he's about to start his ministry. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That 
little phrase, all righteousness, is tricky. We, we can define what righteousness means, but what does Jesus mean as he uses it? All right, one option is that Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness. He means God has a righteous law that has all sorts of requirements. And for Jesus to fulfill God's righteous law, he needs to keep all of those requirements, which includes receiving baptism from John. That's a possibility. Another possibility is he's going to fill up the righteousness that is lacking in everybody else who's out there. Everybody else who's getting baptized for repentance, they don't have any righteousness, right? They're righteous. They have, they're full of unrighteousness. And that Jesus going to, keep, to be baptized is sort of signifying the baptism of his death by which he gives to the unrighteous his own righteousness. Now, both of those options are theologically true. I don't, however, think they flow out of the context of Matthew chapter 3. Because there's a key word here. That word is to fulfill. Matthew's already used that word four times. And he has implied it two other times in two chapters. And it's all about something being promised or happening in the Old Testament that is completed or accomplished by Jesus. So the Old Testament says he'll be born of a virgin. Matthew tells us he's born of a virgin. The Old Testament says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us it's fulfilled because he's born in Bethlehem. There's also these patterns, these patterns of being called out of Egypt. Just as Israel is called out of Egypt, so too is Jesus called out of Egypt. It's a, it's a sort of a, I called it a couple weeks ago, a prophetic pattern that he fulfills. And notice what he says, John doesn't say, I need to fulfill all righteousness. He says, it's fitting for us to fulfill. John, the Old Testament fulfillment of the voice in the wilderness, who is preparing the way for the Messiah, that's the guy that needs to baptize Jesus to fulfill all that is foretold and looked to in the Old Testament. I mean, the the pattern of God's people is that they go down to Egypt. That's what we ended the book of Genesis. Remember last year, we ended Genesis in Egypt. Exodus begins, and those, that opening section, God is calling his people out of Egypt. Matthew tells us that being brought out of Egypt is fulfilled in Jesus. What happens, first thing for God's people when they come out of Egypt? They go into the Red Sea. right? They go into the water. So here is Jesus walking this same pattern out of Egypt into the water. We're going to see next week. He goes to the desert to be tempted for 40 days, just as the Hebrews go into the wilderness and they're tempted for 40 years. Jesus is following this this pattern. And what he's doing is he's assuming the place of his people. He's coming down and walking in their footsteps. He's coming down and he's reliving their experience. It's as if in the baptism, he is identifying with his people. He's taking to himself that which marks his people in order that he might be like them, truly man, just like them. I I preached this baptism a couple years ago at the chapel service at Canterbury Classical School where my children go to school. And I was trying to figure out how to communicate this to some 
elementary-aged kids. Now, one thing you need to know about Canterbury is that they have a very strict uniform policy, right? And so they wear, you know, pants or plaid skirts, and they have these, you know, tight, stiff, white button-up shirts, and they have to wear a ascot or a tie. So you can imagine these kids in their classroom one day, and they are even though they're dressed very nicely, they're still kids, and they are misbehaving like crazy. And they're throwing stuff around, and they're disobeying their teachers, and they're misbehaving all through the day. And the teacher finally is fed up and says, the worst thing you can say to a bunch of second graders, you can't go to recess, right? You have to stay in for recess. So all these kids are stuck at their desk, nothing to do for recess. But then right before recess starts, a new student comes, just got on shorts and a T-shirt, to join the class. And teacher says, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You just go play on the playground. These kids have to stay in here out of recess. You can go play on the playground. And the student says, no, I'm just going to stay here. The kids are like, are you crazy? <laughs> you have free recess. Go take it. The student says, no, in fact, I'm going to put on your uniform. <laughs> Give me those long, uncomfortable pants, right? Give me that stiff white collar. Even I'll just put on that clip-on tie like everybody else. I'm going to put on the uniform of this class. I'm going to stay with this class as they experience their punishment of staying in during recess. Jesus has come to put on the uniform, as it were. And by marking himself with baptism, he puts himself under the wrath of God at sin. He has no need for a baptism of repentance, but he takes it anyway because he's he's coming to be like us in every way. He says to John, give me the identity of a guilty and condemned people. Give me the mark of a filthy people. Give me the sign of needing repentance. I take it because I'm fully man, just like you. Jesus is not baptized for himself. He's baptized for us. This baptism is for you. We look at this baptism, and it is the greatest news in Scripture. Because here is a representative who is just like us. Who is truly a man who is even marked by the stain of sin. The baptism reveals a representative who is truly man, just like you. You can imagine sitting there in a courtroom before a judge, waiting for your court-appointed attorney. And the attorney shows up, and they're just like you. And he comes, and he sympathizes with you, and he he takes your case. And he says, I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to represent you. And and here's the thing. I'm actually guilty, just like you. And you would think, whoa, whoa, hold on. I don't want a guilty representative, right? (laughs) So we need to see that not only is he truly man, he's also truly God. Verses 16 and 17. He is truly God. Everything we have seen so far is pretty ordinary. In fact, Matthew doesn't even tell us exactly what happens with the baptism. He just writes, then he, that's John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, it's like he just sort of skips over the actual baptism, right? There's nothing special happening here. It's kind of two guys and a river and some water. Either he is dunked or some water is poured over him. It doesn't tell us. 
But then something incredible happens. Something earth-shaking happens. I mean, there's these moments in the Bible. And, you know, the Bible usually doesn't make that much of a big deal of it. Uh, But when something happens like the heavens being opened, or when a cloud appears, or when a mountain shakes, something significant is happening in all of redemptive history. And Matthew tells us the heavens are opened. I don't know what that means, but that must have been crazy, right? I mean, looking up and seeing the sky opened, as it were. Mark uses more descriptive terms, and he says the heavens were torn open. Torn open. You can imagine sort of being in a tent and all of a sudden someone just rips open the door and that zipper just goes flying and it's ripped open. The the tent of heaven is ripped open. And two things happen. A dove descends and a voice declares. So we have Jesus just coming out of the water. We have a dove coming down and we have the voice Coming in, a voice descending from on God, from on high. And the, the, the neon sign of this text, right? The message of these two verses, the, the, the blinking, glaring sign that you cannot miss is that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. The voice says, this is my beloved Son. And we can deduce pretty easily who would call him Son or the Father. So this reveals the persons of the Godhead and what we call the Trinity, right? We have God the Father speaking. We have God the Son spoken to or spoken about in a sense. And we have God the Spirit, the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And the point for John, for us to know, is that Jesus is the divine Son of God. That all the hints make sense now. The virgin birth from chapter 1, well, that makes sense why he doesn't have an earthly father, because God is his father. All the fulfillment of the new Israel in chapter 2, well, that makes sense now, because Israel is the son of God, so Jesus now fulfills that as the son of God. The words from last week in Matthew chapter 3, that he is greater than John. Well, John's the greatest ever, so to be greater than John marks him as divine. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is true God of true God, very God of very God, God of God, light of light. Here is truly and indeed God the Son, God himself. And notice how he is described in verse 17. Well, first notice who the Father is talking to. Because he says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He's not talking to Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. So the Father speaks in this apocalyptic moment for our benefit. It's like we're eavesdropping on the conversation of the Trinity. We are given ears to hear who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, this is my, how does he describe him? My beloved Son, that God the Son is loved by the, God the Father. Now, God the Father never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means his love has been from all eternity and extends to all eternity. 
He has never not loved the son. It's not that Jesus has done something in this moment that has earned his father's love for him. No, the father has forever and always loved his son. He goes on to say, I am well pleased. You know what it is like for a kid to have mom and dad say this to you. God is, the father is describing his son and he is saying, I am well pleased with him. This is going to be important in a minute. Jesus is truly God. He is not almost God. He's not kind of God. He's not partially God. He's not once was a man and became a God. No, we are, we are told by God the Father himself that this is his only begotten son in whom he is well pleased. That is the neon sign of this text. But once we sort of get past that glaring light, we see there's actually some fine print here. There's even more going on. There's some, some echoes of the Old Testament in this announcement. In the fine print, I want to show you two more things. First, I want to show you that the son is also the king. He's also the messianic king. There are echoes here of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm that speaks of David's royal throne. And in that psalm, we read this. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. The echoes of Psalm 2 in Matthew 3 show us that in addition to Jesus being the divine son of God, he also fulfills the throne of David. That as the king, he reigns as the son of the Father Almighty. That the father is announcing the son as the king sitting on David's throne. The second echo from the Old Testament we hear in this text is from Isaiah chapter 42. And Isaiah chapter 42, we see the son is also a servant. He is a king from Psalm 2. He's also a servant. Listen to Isaiah 42 verse 1. God says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. By using that language, by sending the spirit to descend upon the head of the baptized Jesus, the father is telling us that he is the anointed servant of Isaiah chapter 42, that in him a new age has dawned, a new kingdom has come, a new leader has arisen, a new servant has come forth, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The falling of the spirit is is like an anointing, the anointing like a coronation, the giving of a crown of a new age to come. And if you know much of Isaiah, you know there's lots of prophecies about a servant, And in all of them, the servant suffers. He's actually called in Isaiah the suffering servant over and over again. So the father is telling us that the son will take on the mantle of a servant. And in so doing, as the anointed Messiah, he will suffer on behalf of his people. Many of you know this. And so it is sort of lost 
It's shock and awe, right? (laughs) But that the Son of God would come for his crown. But before he takes on the crown and the throne of a royal Messiah, he takes to himself the marks of a servant, of a suffering servant. It's as if Matthew is looking at us, every one of us, and saying, Dear guilty sinner, dear condemned sinner who sits in the dock and awaits your judgment, here is your representative. Here is who the court has appointed for you. And he is the very son of God. And he is the royal Messiah on David's throne. And he is a suffering servant. He is truly man and he is truly God. What does that mean for us? We see who Jesus is. What does that mean for us as guilty sinners before a righteous judge? Well, it means, number one, that here is the one who takes our case. You can imagine if you're a lawyer and somebody asks you to do a little pro bono work to represent a client for a couple minutes, and you say, well, what is she guilty of? (laughs) What is he guilty of? Imagine if your list was pulled out before this lawyer. It's out pass. <laughs> Take the next one. Here is a representative who takes our case, who identifies with us, who puts on our clothes, filthy and all. I mean, I'm at the, the waters of repentance into which all of these confessing sinners were baptized to signify their cleansing, that water's filthy with their sin. And here Jesus comes to be soaked in that same water. The water of baptism that cleanses everyone else, dirties him. Because he has come to take our case. As we read in 1 John, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does his baptism mean for you? It means that you are not alone. It means that you are not left alone to represent yourself. You are not left alone to present your case before God. You are not left alone to mount up enough righteousness to overcome the stench of sin in your life. You are not alone. But you have a representative who comes all the way down, who puts on your clothes, who puts on humanity, who is baptized in the filthy waters of repentance for you. What does it mean that he's truly a man and truly God? It means that you are not alone. Secondly, it means that he bears our guilt. He doesn't merely make a really good case to get us off because he argues it so well according to legal precedent. There is no argument that can get us off. So he bears our guilt. He pleads himself. This is why Isaiah uses the language of the suffering servant. The suffering servant who bears our wounds, who receives our stripes, who receives the wrath that is destined for us by the righteousness of God, but is put aside because he bears our guilt. 
Before he takes the crown of glory as the king, he comes to take the crown of thorns. What does his baptism mean? It means that you are not condemned. It means that you are free. It means that the mountain of condemnation has been removed from your heart. It means that the the conviction of God's law that is righteous and true and finds you guilty is silenced. It means that your conscience that is ever pricked by your own sin and will not stop accusing you night and day is silenced. It means that his enemy, the devil himself who stands to accuse us, has the very words taken out of his mouth. You are not condemned. You are free from guilt and sin and condemnation. And you can rest in him. And finally and thirdly, it means this representative who's truly man and truly God, he pleases our father. I read a commentary this week and it said that Jesus is obedient to be baptized And that makes God happy. So you should be obedient to make God happy. And I almost threw that book against the wall. (laughs) That is not what this is about. For two reasons. One, the father is not pleased with the son because he does something. As if God the father is waiting to see who the son really is. Notice an old theologian has written, Jesus is not the son because He is loved. He is loved because he's the son. He's always been the son. He always will be the son. And because of that, he is loved. And the the truth of the gospel is that by faith in Jesus, we are united to him. We are brought into him. We are hidden under him. And so all that the pleasure and the delight that God the father has in the son, he has in us. It's not that we have to go do something to receive that. Christ has already done it. We are just hidden in him. And the fact that the father is never, ever for a moment displeased with his son means that those of us who are in him, he is never, ever for a moment displeased with us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he has blessed us in the beloved. That we are in the beloved, and so we are blessed as the beloved is. His baptism means that you are not despised, but you are loved. Not because you've done anything. Not because your good works please him. It is only because you are hidden in Christ. Because he pleases our father. What does it mean that he is truly man and truly God? Well, it means that you're not alone It means you are not condemned, and it means that you are not despised. This, dear friends, is the court-appointed representative. You have a right to an attorney. And I ask you this in closing, is he yours? There's no one else, y'all. You could try to represent yourself. It's not going to work. The judge has already told us it's not going to work. There's no one else. It's him or it's no one. 
Trust in him this morning. Depend upon him. Cast your hope upon the only representative who will ever please the father on your behalf. And if he is yours, never fear. Why? Because he's been baptized. The title of this sermon, remember his baptism. You're supposed to remember your own. Yes, of course, but remember his. Because it means you're not alone. It means you're not condemned. It means you're not despised. Remember his baptism and be at peace. You have the only representative that you will ever need. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, what a, what a word for us to peer into the depths of love of our triune God and to discover that in that love we are welcomed, we are invited, and we ourselves are called beloved. That we would have a, a, a Savior stoop so low and raise sinners up so high. That he would be baptized and marked by our own sin and that he would bear us and he would bear our guilt before your mighty throne that we would call it this day a throne of grace. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would bring conviction on those who are not looking to Christ this morning. Prick those stubborn and rebellious hearts to turn and to trust upon him alone. And Lord, for those of us who are weary of our sin, who are weighed down by our own sense of accusation and condemnation and undeserving before you, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to look upon the baptism of Christ and be free and be at peace and know with all confidence that we are beloved. Lord, cast our vision this week, every day, back to the baptism of Jesus. And would it give us hope and security and peace. In his name we pray. Amen.